people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Nebo zdále, tak se napij Ech, jen jednou bylo včera A zítra budem spát Kauči prasaj pera Tak říkaj, mám tě rád Welcome to the Projection Booth I'm your host Mike White Joining me once again is Ms. Rain Alexander Hi, great to be here also joining us for the first time is Ms. Cerise Howard. Yes, wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. We continue our September month of murder and mayhem with Oldrich Lipsky's 1971 film, Four Murders Are Enough, Darling. The film stars Oldrich's brother, Lubomir, as George Camel, a teacher who is mistaken for a murderer by two rival gangs who are fighting for a million-dollar check. The movie is the second adaptation of the book by... Ninad Brixey, Entry Forbidden to the Dead. I tried desperately to find that first adaptation, which was done in Yugoslavia in 1965, but was unable to get a copy. So, also, if you don't want this movie ruined, please track it down and watch it before you listen to this discussion. It has been restored and is available, I think it's available on DVD through checkmovie.com with English subtitles. Pretty darn nice looking version of it. So, Rain, was this a first time watch for you? It was. It was. I had seen a couple of this filmmaker's works before. But yeah, this was this was something that was very new to me. And I went into this one actually completely blind. Like I was like, I did, I did no background before I hit play on this one. And then I had to watch it a couple more times after that to really let it let it sink in because this movie is a lot. And Cerise, were you familiar with this one? I was, yeah. I'd done a bit of a deep dive into Lipsky's filmography a few years back as a previous director here where I am in Melbourne of a Czech and Slovak film festival. Run some of his films previously. Adele hasn't had her dinner yet and The Mysterious Castle and The Carpathians, both later works. And I've got a couple programmed for this year's Melbourne Cinematheque program, still coming up, Happy End, one I know you're familiar with, which I adore. And that, that film is a singular masterpiece. And Lemonade Joe, which is earlier still, a Western spoof and a ton of fun. Uh, so, yeah, I, I had more than dabbled a little in the world of Lipsky, uh, but I hadn't uh, seen a version of the film look anywhere near as good as this recent restoration that Kalavivari International Film Festival evidently had a hand in. It looks gorgeous. 
I wasn't aware that it had been restored until I was looking around a little bit more after I watched it for the first time. And I'm okay with the version that's out there, but it's pretty rough. But that version that you're talking about, yes, I saw a preview for that, saw some clips. It looks so much better than what I ended up watching, which was really very kind of a pink print. And especially when you come to some of the the special effects that are in the movie, you can always tell there's a real shift in the quality of the film right before the special effects happen. And this movie uses a lot of special effects. I mean, this is very similar to a movie that we covered before on the show, Who Wants to Kill Jesse from 1966. And it was written by the same screenwriter, adapted by the same screenwriter, Milos Masarek. And I want to say the art is done by the same artist who did the still drawings for Who Wants to Kill Jesse, but it doesn't have the same flow as Jesse. And some of the, I like the use of these comic special effects that they have, but the use of the actual comic book that they have in the movie isn't as well integrated to me as the comic book from Who Wants to Kill Jesse, because there are comics that run through this whole thing, but at least we get to see the person who's creating the comics. We get the, one of the characters is supposed to be this illustrator. So, cause George, our main character, I said, he's a school teacher, but he seems both a school teacher in, he seems to work for newspaper. Is he a poet for a newspaper? Is that what you guys are picking up on? Yeah. Something, something along those lines. I, I remember there's a moment where He's told, like, oh, you're going to get to have your poems published. He's very excited about it. That's a minor point that I'm just, like, pulling out of the out of the air as we're talking. But, yeah, like, there there is some link there. Yeah, he seems uh, to be quite old school in his tastes. He's trying to interest his students in the finer things, the high art, the canon. They're all interested in comic books, um, which he presumes to be low art. And, of course, he winds up heavily embroiled in this you know, absurd, extremely, increasingly absurd comic book escapade himself. But um, yeah, he seems, that seems to be his side hustle, writing what is probably pretty dull poetry for um, some sort of probably tabloid rag, I'm thinking. Yeah, I kept thinking, man, this guy's poetry is probably rivals the Vogons for being boring. He seems like a real boring dude, and so that all of these exciting things are happen to, happening to him, he doesn't know how to handle it for quite a while. But finally, he starts to embrace it, especially after he starts to get interest from one of the other people that works at this magazine, Sabrina, played by Yarina Odalova. So, Cerise, if I'm screwing up these names, feel free to correct me, by the way. You definitely know much more about this stuff than I do. Sure, she's Yirjana, which is basically Georgina. Yirjana Pokhtalova. She's pretty great, though. She's very shallow, let's say, and she starts to show George some interest early on in the movie, but it's very much just to make the illustrator at the magazine slash newspaper jealous. Eventually, I think she sincerely falls for him, but it does take a while before it's not just doing this to make the illustrator jealous. I don't think it could be said that any of the characters in this completely madcap film have particularly deeply defined you know, rich motivations for their conduct. It's it's just a, a, a madcap romp, and it really is just about the increasing absurdity 
rather more than you know us as viewers but becoming especially invested in the fates that the film's going to meet out to anybody because it's absolutely gloriously inconsequential which i think is like one of the things that attracted me to it on my second watch because having gone in initially without really any background i didn't even really look at who had directed it at that point but coming in the second time and with all you know this litany of questions and having some answers around this is in many ways to, to my mind an extension of what he began with with lemonade joe like i'm really lampooning this like american situation and as a viewer there was a moment where i'm like i really would like to transport myself my consciousness into a a check perspective from this time and really understand what they thought america was about i feel like we're getting some of that because you know, it's clear that there's this like vulgarity, there's this simplicity, there's the shallowness that's like carrying through, which definitely begins with, you know, I see that in Lemonade Joe. There's still like this love for it, right? There seems to be this like desire, <laughs> there's something desirable about it. It's not just complete derision, right? And I thought that was so fascinating. I just like all the way through, even though this film is to my, for me, it's, it's exhausting because it's just too much. I had to take a break, you know, a couple of times because I just cannot do much. It's not just, you know, it's not just about lampooning this shallowness. There's still some aspect of it, which is valorizing isn't quite the right word, but it's also not the word. You know what I mean? There's definitely those overtones of lampooning American stuff, as you're saying, the whole movie takes place in a fictional country, which I found interesting. It's kind of like Czechoslovakia, but not really Czechoslovakia. You've got the picture of the fearless leader on the wall. It's obviously not their leader. You have these two rival gangs that I mentioned before, and they're both from fake places, though I was very glad that the one gang is from a place called Michiga. So it's so close to Michigan that I was just like – are they supposed to be from Detroit or something? Because these two gangs, you really cannot tell the difference between these gangs whatsoever. When they show up, they all dress so similar. They all have these goofy looking hats on. I mean, they're just regular fedora type things, but they have like the bands are very garish and colorful and they are all very thuggish. I mean, they're hilarious in that they are just such broad characters. And the only real difference between the two, and you get to know some of the gangsters as you go along, usually right before they die. But the one gang from, I don't remember if it's the Michigan gang or the other gang. but And it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, it really doesn't matter. But they're led by a woman named Kate, and she's played by Eva Jan Zorova, who we've talked about on this podcast many, many times before. She is freaking brilliant in everything that she's in. Most people would know her from Morgiana, where she plays two roles, and you wouldn't believe that it's the same person. In here, she is constantly dressing up. She's almost always in, in drag in this movie. She shows up dressed as so many different men. Even the first time we see her, she's putting on these, this outfit and dressing as a train conductor because this whole movie starts on a train because why not? And 
that's where we're introduced to the two rival gangs. We're introduced to her and we're introduced to this whole idea of the million dollar check. But then at the end of the movie, we come back to the train. So I don't know if everything that took place in the movie is actually taking place in the comic book that one of the characters is reading or what that little twist at the end is, but I kind of love it. And it doesn't matter either. No, <laughs> just, no. Nothing in the film matters. It's sort of like pure pop art uh, exercise. The exercise makes it sound rather stiff, which it certainly isn't. It's completely free-forming and free-flowing and freewheeling. And you know, of this genre that the Czechs, Slovaks, referred to as blazny comedia, which is simply translates as crazy comedies, it's just any any pretext for a gag and it's in. It's sort of like, a, you could say, behind the Iron Curtain precursor to the Zucker Brothers School of Comedy. You know, I, I grew up on Flying High, which I think you all know as Airplane, and just that constant stream of gags, like any pretext for a gag. It doesn't have to make sense in any sort of, you know, this is how physics works sort of sense. It's just, no, throw it in. Anything to get a laugh or you know, any pratfall. There are, you can't have too many pratfalls, and in this case, you can't have too small a body count because it just doesn't matter. Just just keep them coming. And all of these uh, these these absurd gangsters who who all just are a type. They don't exactly have character, but they are a type, and they're beautifully sketched out. And they, they could easily have stepped off a, a canvas by Lichtenstein or Warhol. You know, they could have been silk screened into life. There, they, they're just so recognizable and yet slightly off as well and i think that's where the this eastern european you know, they'd say central european uh, take on the west comes in as people lampooning something that they don't necessarily have exposure to directly and certainly not through any official channels and they're making it for an audience who doesn't have access to the sorts of materials actually being parodied which makes it unclear whether parody is exactly the right word or because the relation between the, these takes on these tropes that are familiar to us and, and the actual tropes is not quite straightforward. I don't think a lot of the time the people enjoying these films knew what they were referring to. And I'm not always convinced that the filmmakers had those reference accessible either. And hence mayhem ensues. I'm experiencing this almost purely visual, though I Obviously, I've got subtitles, so I am catching some jokes through the subtitles, especially later on when um, Joseph Kemmer, he plays a another gangster, and he has false teeth that get knocked out, and so he is trying to talk through the lack of teeth, and so you get the lisping that he's doing in the subtitles. It's almost like Sylvester the Cat type of lisp that he has, and you're getting the the translations of that in the subs. But were there other things that you think that were going on that a viewer like myself who doesn't understand the language would have missed? Were there more jokes, more layers going on? Because you talked about airplane or flying high. I mean, that thing is just chock full of jokes all the time. This thing, very similar as far as so many jokes, but I'm curious what I'm missing. I think there's plenty in there. Don't have any doubt that I'm not across it all either. I, I do speak a bit of Czech and understand a bit and you know, trying to keep up with the you know, this very rapid fire dialogue. There's wordplay. I can hear the the assonance in some of the speech. Some of the names of characters seem to have those names only so that they can rhyme with something that's being spat out by one of the cast just for 
humorous end just for the, the fun of the sound alike names and they fly by so quickly and i'm sure there's wordplay pure wordplay in check that on the idiomatic front that just is i'm going to presume untranslatable i'm sure there's tons of it in there i just feel it but even some things that definitely do come through the character gogo you know i mean that it seems very clear that there's there's semiotic joke that's going on there and especially as that builds to towards the end where they're saying we're all go-go we're all all of us are go-go right everybody here is go-go so like carries through it works as a joke even you know all these years later in a different completely different place and yet clearly there's more to it would understand on a different level if i were watching this in 1971 in prague right yeah i love go-go go-go is amazing so so I guess we should talk a little bit more about the plot here. So that this whole we get the setup with the two rival gangs at the beginning on this train, and then quickly we're introduced to George and meeting him, realizing that he's some sort of, you know, put upon teacher. He's trying to, as you said, teach Macbeth. And he's asking the students, you know, what does this whole out damn spot thing mean? And they're just not responding at all. And then you can see that they're all reading comic books in class. And then you find out that one of the students has stolen all these comic books, but he pretends that he has burned them up. And you just get this whole, George is not happy. And George is not the most exciting person in the world, as you said. And then he goes to visit this newspaper office where he sells his poetry and we have Sabrina there. We get to see her interaction with some of her coworkers. She does the famous, I'll date the next guy who comes through the door thing. Of course, it's George. He ends up setting up this date with her, which she really doesn't want anything to do with. But he's super excited about this. And he wants to make this cocktail called hoo-hoo. And really, you know, you were talking about... uh uh, Lemonade Joe, and I kept thinking of Loca Cola, uh, the the main drink from that one. And here we have this hoo hoo drink that he keeps trying to make, and sends his landlady out for all these ingredients. And while she's out getting the ingredients, there's a knock at the door. He opens up the door, and this is the first of I lost count because I was counting for a little while, but this is the first of two dozen, maybe more corpses that are at the door that fall into the room when he opens up the door, thus kicking off this whole thing of him trying to hide a corpse or him being caught red-handed with a corpse. And it's a real Roger Thornhill, George Kaplan type of thing where constantly bodies are falling into the room with a knife in their back. And what does George do? He always just grabs that knife and is holding it whenever somebody walks through the door. <laughs> yeah, sometimes with a little geyser of blood in the, with it, too. He gets turned on to Gogo, who is a big purveyor of hoo-hoo. And Gogo, the hoo-hoo drinker, the key eventually leads George to another person who gave the first corpse the the drink and so he's trying to like solve this mystery it's almost like mini film noir at the beginning here of like oh i've been set up for a crime i didn't commit everybody's against me the cops think that i did this my landlady thinks i did this 
Sabrina thinks that I did this. And you would think that the movie's going to play out where he's trying to investigate this and clear his name. But after a while, the bodies start to pile up so much from these two gangs because they are constantly murdering each other. And for whatever reason, setting these corpses up at the door for him to find that after a while, he just kind of embraces it. Like, yeah, all right, I'm the guy that killed all these people. And he becomes this big shot. He's like uh, uh, Jack the Giant Killer kind of thing. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, of course. I, I'm the murderer of all these people. You can't stop me. And the the cops, after a while, come to embrace him. It's pretty great. Well, there is that one amazing scene where he gets beaten up. And true to so much of Lipsky's filmography, there's clearly some undercranking going on just to, to speed it up as he flies across the table from right to left and then a moment and a punch later from left to right again. And each each time he's airborne, it's just sped up that little bit. It's a little more subtle than in some of his other films, actually. It's just sped up that little bit to make it just that little bit funnier without it being drawing too much attention to itself, but it's definitely happening. I see that in so many of his films. There's, there's that real love of sort of silent error comedy and slapstick and and technique, including sort of early cinema-styled special effects, and we see that in this film a bit. But there's a freeze frame, a frame later, suddenly everyone's got guns, and they're not quite positioned exactly as they were in the previous frame, but it's, it's like that sort of goodies special effects as well. I don't know if you grew up on the goodies, the BBC later ITV comedy series, but... I've heard of the goodies, definitely. Very much embraced those sort of in-camera tricks as well, which also drew attention to their artifice, but in such a charming, lo-fi way. Well, at least I still find that very charming. Oh, no, I totally do. And it's, like you said, it's chock full of all these visual gags, like the first corpse that he has. He's trying to find a place to put the corpse. And at one point, he's sitting next to Sabrina. She's in a chair. He's in the chair next to her. Maybe he's on the arm of the chair. And the corpse's arm flops out. And she's like, oh, let me read your palm. Oh, your hand's so cold. Because, of course, she's holding the corpse's hand and then looking at me and like, oh, wow, your lifeline, you should be dead already. (laughs) (laughs) And there are just like these constant things. And like you were saying, the, the little nods to silent cinema or the use of special effects. I mentioned before this whole thing with all of the art that happens. So like something will happen to George and it'll freeze frame. He'll suddenly turn into the cartoon version of George or the comic version of George, very Lichtenstein-esque with the the way that he looks. And then his face will change colors. Lions will come out. I mean, this is very Batman-esque too. At one point he talks about how he took out some of the gangsters by doing a biff and a pop and a boom, and you get those words coming across the screen, even more dynamic, I would say, than some of the Batman stuff. The comic artist in question is named Kaya Saudek. Hasn't been alive for some time, though. His famous brother, a photographer, Jan Saudek, is, I'm pretty sure he's still alive and active. But Kaya Saudek's artwork throughout this is gorgeous, just like it was in Who Wants to Kill Jesse as well. He also did a lot of film posters, and there's a, a spectacular one he did for what I would say is the, the closest thing that the West produced to these two films, this and, and Jesse, and that's Barbarella. Uh, he did a beautiful poster. You can find easily if you get Googling. Look for Saudek Barbarella poster. It's spectacular. 
and instantly recognizable as the the work of the same artist. Yeah, it looks amazing, and I love when they. There's there's a few times in the movie where we just switch purely to the comic strips. There's a chase later on that takes place where wouldn't it make a lot of sense if we didn't have to shoot this whole car chase and just did it all as comic panels. And then when we cut back, the car has been basically destroyed. We get to see the results of what happened during the comic strip part of it and just how, well, it's a great money saving thing, but it's also pretty hilarious to go from one medium to another back to the first one and have those effects visible in the real quote unquote real world. Yeah, it seems to be like ripping a page beforehand from the trauma world, right? Where they save they save the money for the big spoiler alert car burning scene, right? Which was like that's when I made a note like this film seems a lot more expensive than one would think, given what <laughs> given what it is. But yeah, yeah, I mean they could save all that all that time and energy and really devote it towards these what more or less set pieces, right? Where they can torch a garage, torch a, torch a car, and just let the comic book do the, the, that storytelling, do the action storytelling. But how different is that, really? I mean, time period-wise, we're still in that time, like even in an American film, like we're not having as many extended on-the-street scenes. Like that was just beginning to happen at this point, right? Late 60s, early 70s. So I don't think that was like out of... It was still what in vogue, right? It was still kind of a common practice to to save the the leave that like crazy action stuff left to the imagination, I suppose. And even the more banal stuff that they could have done off set, like just the the opening and close of the film on a train. I mean, they're not on a train, but that surely just feeds into the the pop artishness of it all as well, the, the artificiality of the entire film. It's of a piece. If they actually had been on a train and you were convinced of it being a train and seeing some landscape convincingly scroll past through some windows, it would have been a different film. It would have set up a different mood from the outset. We're not meant to believe what's going on in this film. I mean, who could? It's so ridiculous. It is, yeah, it's pop art. Cinema verite, it is not. Never being strived for. That initial watch, I got really excited that maybe this was going to be bullet train before bullet train existed, right? I was like, this is going to be great, fighting gangs on a train, right? And of course, we get the fighting gangs, and maybe, maybe they're not on the train. Most of the action we see is not at all set on a train. So I guess that would be, that would have been my initial, maybe my initial letdown, I think, in my first viewing where I'm like, oh, that was, that was exciting for, you know, this 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 lampoon, very bright colored kind of take on that trope of strangers on a train, two bullet train with this somewhere in the middle, right? I was really happy with all of the breaks for commercials that we get through here that are integrated into the action and you get there's the one ad for a knife there's the ad for underwear that happens right before he gets a new pair of underwear which seem to really repel dirt because later on after the car explosion he's filthy on his face he's filthy on his t-shirt but his underwear seem pristine and white so that apollo underwear really works well there is a breakneck pace to this film a lot of times the whole time yeah it's yeah it's, it's hanging on stop. for dear life as a viewer 
and yeah, those corpses just pile up and pile up. There's the one part where he's being questioned by the psychiatrist. And that's another part where I'm thinking that I'm missing some of the subtleties of the language stuff because they're doing very much a word association thing. And of course, everybody assumes that he's guilty with all of this stuff. So they're just basically looking for excuses and trying to tie some of these wordplay that they're doing or, or word association back into him being a murderer. But yeah, I love that whole thing with him having this word association, having the big contraption on his head. I mean, even though that's not a cartoon, it looks like a cartoon thing. It looks like something a mad scientist would slap on your head when he's trying to read your mind. And I just love how ridiculous it is. I mean, that's the thing I love about Lipsky is that he always just He's, he's playing for the people in the back row. It's big, it's broad comedy, but there are some little subtle jokes here and there that really just keep you guessing. It's like, you think the comparisons to airplane slash flying high are very apt because the jokes just keep coming and keep coming. And if one doesn't land, that's okay. Cause there's another one coming within the next 20 seconds. One of the questions that came to my mind throughout it was whether this film in particular had influenced Woody Allen because it just, with his character being who he is, is such a Woody Allen character. And, you know, and it's right in that sweet spot as Woody Allen is dealing with a lot of these same things. You know, he had already made a couple of films and so it was already like treading in this, in this world. And I think it's very reasonable to think that he would have watched this maybe a couple of times and I just, I, I can't help but wonder what it would have been like to be Woody watching this film and like pulling ideas and thinking, if they can get away with this, I can get away with a lot more as well. So rather than a clarinet, it's the tuba. I had really only been familiar with this movie from the DVD that had been out for many years. So it's the, it's right from, they took the image on the DVD right from the end of the movie when he is filthy, like I mentioned, and she is totally cleaned because she's been stuck in a bathroom that has been taken over by bubbles. <laughs> and the way that they pull her out and her shape remains in the bubbles is pretty great. But it's it's that picture of them together and with the title, Four Murders Are Enough, Darling, I always thought that she was the murderer and he was the one trying to talk her out of murdering all these. So when the shoes on the other foot, I was pretty glad because he is, is so milk toast that you really just cannot believe this guy is this major mafioso guy. There was a Polish movie called either killer or Kyler K I L E R very similar kind of thing of like the milk toast guy who's mistaken for the killer type of thing. But sure. We've seen that in many, many other films like what the man with one red shoe, these types of things. But they really pull it off here. This works so well, and it's not necessarily a, a plot contrivance that I enjoy, but here I really like this. The milk toast leading man character is quite common in a lot of Czechoslovak cinema, and a lot of these crazy comedies, you know, a lot of the comedy does derive from a protagonist who doesn't exactly exhibit a lot of agency, just stuff happens, and it's nuts, and it's all around them, and they get immersed in it and 
you know, Lubomir Lipsky is this perfectly bland looking individual, perfectly cast. It's not just that he's the brother of the director, but it's, you know, it's, I'm sure there was more to his casting than that. He's, it's just perfect. It's, I think it would also be easy to underestimate the skill of his performance because there's actually quite a great deal of physical comedy to it. So to actually pull off being that, that bland, but somehow not so bland that you just want to tune out. It's, he's, you know, there, there are, of course, as, as I alluded to earlier, moments where he is physically being thrown about the place, but he does use his body uh, performatively in, in much of the time, quite subtle ways. And I actually think that's probably a lot harder than it looks. Just, just I mean, I, I wouldn't even be able to position myself in a, a scene like any in this film without getting the giggles because it's so absurd. So just, just to be that blank. I think is probably a, a great skill. It's not deadpan exactly because that suggests something, a slightly different performative register, I think. He's not deadpan, but he's also just not an agent of his own destiny. I mean, he does accept later on, sort of get on board with this idea that, oh, okay, yeah, maybe I am this murderer and that's cool. The girl is interested in me. I mean, he even gets you know, the whole misunderstanding of, what a hoo-hoo cocktail might be leads to a, a sex scene, which seems so improbable because he's so desperately unsexy and naive. And then when he wakes up the next morning, he seems sort of slightly confused, but doesn't overplay it. It's so so underplayed and so ridiculous because, again, he, he does not look like someone who's just had a big sexy night. He just, again, looks like this milk toast and he's confused and probably needs to be somewhere else again already. But how and where and when and What's going on anyway? What on earth is going on? Just wanted a drink. Yeah, when he puts that woman in the bag <laughs> and just is trying to shove her in there, he's like, oh, great. You know, I mentioned that film noir thing. It's like, here's the witness. This is the person that sold this guy the drink or gave him the tainted drink. I'm going to take her to the police. And of course, the police come in after he's like shoving her into a sack because the police characters are delightful as well, especially that you've got two kind of run-in-the-mill guys at it but they're pretty hilarious as well and then you have kind of more like the the sergeant and then the captain and the captain he's just losing his mind there's one scene where he is walking all over the room he walks up a chair and then walks down off of the chair and he's just going nuts and i love the sergeant is just like well he's italian <laughs> that irreverence towards authority figures, which was such a staple of 60s cinema there. And this is a film that emerged just after 1968 and the extremely traumatic Warsaw Pact occupation of Czechoslovakia, which you know, then subjected the country to so many more years of totalitarianism. And a lot of the auteur cinema that emerged in the 60s and the filmmakers attached to it, that, that faded out and the films were censored and uh, many of those filmmakers' careers were cut short or they had to live in exile or were just very compromised. But somehow this subversive filmmaking crept into the popular cinema, into these sorts of films, and there was still a place, still an opportunity to cock a snook at authority figures, and it appears relentlessly in these crazy comedies of this period. And clearly they, they, this was not controversial somehow. They maybe. I'm not actually really, it doesn't make much sense to me at all, generally censorship, but also in this particular case, why the, the censors there 
let this through when they were denied many of the filmmakers of the new wave opportunities to keep making work. Because this stuff is clearly, clearly irreverent towards authority, to say the very least. And yet, it, it, as far as I'm aware, there were never issues with these films and um, their dissemination, at least in the domestic sphere in, within Czechoslovakia. I wonder if part of that is that Lipsky was a member of the party and that he could get away with a little bit more than other people could because he was a quote-unquote good communist. Very possibly. But even then, there would have been – yeah, and there is also that a little bit of a safety net when you position a film in a, a make-believe country. I mean, of course, this isn't about Czechoslovakia. It's about, what is it, Bonanzia or something. What's it called? Bonzonia or something ludicrous, which was a strategy a lot of the filmmakers of the 60s used as well, not necessarily making up a place, but just transposing criticism of the current day and the current regime to a different period and saying, look, look how bad the Nazis were, the Nazis Definitely not the communists, the Nazis. <laughs> yeah, I was just talking today about closely observed trains. And, oh, yeah, look at how ridiculous these Nazis are. And then it's like, yeah, really, they're talking about the communists. It's okay. Yeah, but it still seems extraordinary that this stuff got through. I mean, the audiences would have been lapping it up because, A, it's funny in and of itself just superficially, but, B, they're making fun of people who have power. and. What a, what a balm for the, the tormented everyday folk who are living a life of regimented banality much of the time. Um, it's just maybe this is almost overcompensating for those lives being rendered so much duller and so much less opportunity on offer. Because you know, what, what career advancement could you have if you were given a, a job for life by the state? So, um, yeah, these, these films that spilled forth that Lipsky and Vorlicek kept making, Václav Vorlicek, the director of Who Wants to Kill Jesse and who likewise made so many crazy comedies in the 70s. Um, yeah, it's just uh, it's fascinating because I, I don't know of other socialist countries that made comedies that were quite so bananas to allude to Woody Allen in that instance there as well. <laughs> the Italians were definitely doing stuff, but they weren't under nearly the regime that the Czechs were. I mean, when you look at Masarek's work, uh, the writer of this, I mean, tend to credit him as much as I do yeah. with Lipsky, just because he was behind so many of these great films. He was behind Jesse. He was behind, you know, visitors from the Arcana galaxy and just so oh, many film is bonkers, right? Yeah. He was just behind all these kind of nutty things. And his work after 68 is pretty much as crazy as pre 68. So he definitely was churning out some great, great stuff and continued to, all the way up until I think right right around before he passed away. I mean, he he gets credited for things after he passed, just because they're still making adaptations of some of his old things as well as some of his short stories. So, you know, if you look at IMDb, he's got stuff coming out in 2020 when the man passed away in 2002. So he's got a great body of work. Well, in films like this, we're also seeing actors who are often cast in more serious and you could say deeper 
more thespian sort of roles throughout the 60s, just giving it their all in these comedies like Eva Yanjurova and, and Yirzhina Bokhtalova. Uh, you know, you think of Bokhtalova, she, she was in the air, which is one of the most extraordinarily tense and distressing of the Czechoslovak New Wave films. Um, Eva Yanjurova, as you mentioned earlier, Mike, was in Morgiana, which again is a, fa- is a fantastical film. It's not certainly a, a conventional 70s Czechoslovak film, sort of a last hurrah of the new wave, you might say, but still a very different performative register she's in. And prior to that, films like Coach to Vienna, she's a serious actor doing serious acting. But what gifts for comedy these, those two women have and, and just relentlessly and absolutely unashamedly throw themselves into in these films of the 70s of, of Lipsky's and Volacek's. They just have um, seemingly no boundaries to how silly they are willing to be. Brings gives me a lot of joy. I was so afraid for a while during the film that they would never interact. So when they had the big fight in the bathroom where they're battling each other with soap and shower heads and all these things, I was just like, thank you. Thank goodness that this is happening. And yeah, I, I love to when they, I think it's, is it her that discovers that the bad guy is actually a bad woman or it might be George who undoes the shirt and sees the bra and it's like, oh, okay, this is interesting. And then you get later on after the, the, the bubble fight when they pull her out and they realize, you know, like her, I love how she gives herself the balding pate at the top of her head, and then that comes undone, and you get the long hair coming out. But yeah, God, she's just amazing. She's so remarkable in this everything, but especially here to see just all the different costume changes that she goes through when she's the priest, when she's the the not the conductor, but the ticket taker. And I love that little thing that she does when she's on the train and she's fighting with the other guy who is like, no, no, this is my shift. And she's like, no, it's my shift. And he just gets so upset that somebody else is trying to do his job at that same time. And the way she dispatches him with the rope and the the carpet and he just slides right out of the train. So good. Yeah, I could watch it. I could watch a bunch of movies with her as the lead character. That that character specifically, I want to see the mob boss litany of those films from her. And she's still acting. She's one of the few of that generation still really kicking on. She was in a really delightful trailer for the Carnegie Very International Film Festival last year, which you can find online readily too. Listeners out there, well worth a look. She's still got it. Still has that extremely expressive visage. And timing. Some people have got comic timing. Some people don't. She's she's clearly just born with funny bones, I think. And she's funnier than Yirzhina Bokhtalova, who is also great in this. But Yanjurova is just a very gifted comedian. Well, yeah, and that she can play comedy and serious so well. Yeah, her that role in Coach to Vienna. Oh, my God. So good. A harrowing film. Uh, really wonderful. Yeah, I really I didn't have any complaints about any of the performances in this. I thought that so many of them, I mean, I mentioned Joseph Kemmer before. It's amazing to me because when I saw Joseph Kemmer, I'm just like, that's the guy from Marketa Lazarova playing this super silly gangster. I mean, again, very, very serious film compared to this one. And he can take on that comedy like nobody's business. And 
I was glad that he kind of came to the forefront because some of these gangsters are so interchangeable and they are just grist for the mill. But every once in a while, like, you know, the Kate Drexel character or his character will come to the forefront and you're like, oh, okay, this is, this is what we're going to do here with these characters. I like this. Movie definitely keeps you guessing. No, but the, um, the peculiar morality, such as it is of this film, where we've, we're, George's house, I mean, he's, he doesn't actually entirely have the run of his own place. There's clearly the, the little old deer who is busybody, a very familiar type, but who's also there to check that he doesn't bring any women home because that is somehow not on, which to me seems extremely at odds with what I know of the Czechoslovak people lately and of that period. I mean, that seems like something straight out of a, a stuffy British comedy of that era, a TV, a sort of a sitcom setup, and possibly some American shows of that time too, this, this sort of morality police figure who is the landlord or lady. But of course, she gets embroiled in all of this silliness and tries to cater to the how she interprets the needs of all of the people coming and going, or at least behind doors needing more towels for whatever it is they need more towels for. Completely ridiculous. I'm not quite sure who she is. Uh, I now suddenly suspect I should know, but I don't. But she's perfect. Everyone got the memo in this film. There's not a single person who appears on screen, and a lot of people do, who isn't of a piece with the sensibility of this. Yeah, that they all took the same direction very well, I think. I don't know quite how you accomplish that as a director. Well, what is the direction? Mike, how would you, what would you say to someone to elicit this sort of performance style across an entire cast? Rain, what, how would you do this? I'm trying to remember what the Coens would say to the actors and to Sonnefeld when they were shooting Raising Arizona. And I think it was, so wacky was the word. I think they just kept saying more wacky or it was like, it was a synonym for wacky. And yes, they definitely hit that. And I could see Lipsky saying the exact same thing. If I have one regret about this movie, it's that ends with the to be continued and we never get that continuation. I know. See, this is why I want more of that gangster, the queen gangster as a as a continuing character. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's in the novel. Who knows? I would like to see her team up with uh, Black Lizard from the Japanese films. Yeah, see, there's a movie right there. Um, to answer your question, Cerise, I think that I would probably direct them to just believe what they're doing. Like, you have a mission. Here's your mission. Whatever it happens to be, you need to find that check. And everything about your character is about like focusing on that check, regardless of how ridiculous everything else is. You've got to stay on mission and really believe that that is you and your character are focused on. Because every moment, like I, I believe, even though everything is so ridiculous and unbelievable, the set, you know, the set looks like it's going to fall apart at any minute and many, many places. And yet, I believe every single character, as cartoonish as they are, is really who they are performing as, right? <laughs> you know, every gang member, even, you know, and we've talked at length about George, too, you know, just to be able to anchor this beautifully all the way through without seeming like he's, like, aware that he's in a comedy, that he's in a dark comedy, 
that he's in a political comedy even. Like he's just getting through day to day, right? And up until his breaking point. But even then, you know, it's like um, I have been watching a lot of Seinfeld lately. So, of course, I can't really separate this George from George Costanza, even though George Costanza is much more self-aware, is much more aware of his own ridiculousness, right? What, what I think is interesting is that I don't feel like I feel in a similar way to the Costanza reference because I don't really feel empathetic towards George Costanza most of the time in the TV show. I don't necessarily even feel that empathetic towards this George either, you know? Maybe that's because I'm more empathetic towards the mob boss, you know, my, my favorite character. You know, I feel like that there's 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 probably a little something for everyone to hook onto. If you're going to identify with the character here, if you're going to like feel something with one of these characters, I feel like you're still going to be invested in them. Even when he's in the most danger after he swallows that check and they're ready to cut him open, you know he's going to be okay, especially because even if they cut him open, they have the, uh, what was it? It's the it's the butcher. It's the guy who's going to cut him open took a few classes at veterinary school. Oh, no, he, he must be a tailor who's going to sew him back together in the way that he's kind of like doing the finger thing to count how wide the incision's going to be as far as how much he has to sew. And I'm just like, they might go through with this and they might not, but I just know that he's going to make it out regardless. Like this is one of those movies where, you know, everyone is going to be okay at the end of it. There's yes, there's a pile of corpses, but you know that our main characters aren't going to be part of that pile. He's the one guy that will not die. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm not quite sure how that works. If if we're just absorbed certain tropes over the years that we understand that somehow in watching this, and a film which ultimately isn't going to be particularly consequential, like we're not going to come away from it feeling profoundly affected, but that we still understand like there's somehow a contract between the filmmakers and us that, yeah, that our protagonist is going to be okay. And so we we just go with it. I'm not quite sure that is based in whether it's just having been steeped in enough cinema that we take that as given because we know that that's how films like this typically play out. But, yeah, I'm really not quite sure the mechanism is there, that we know that we needn't care. We don't really feel that he's imperiled, even though he looks like he's about to be um, to undergo an extremely amateurish operation in the home by thugs. We know it's going to turn out okay. What I know about the comic world is is pretty limited, but I know there's a comics code in the U.S., right, which would prevent our heroes from really dying, right, especially at that point. Evil is going to be defeated. Good is going to win. There's going to be a happy ending. We do have a happy ending here, right? So it has this, like, very tropey comic book ending, but... I can't imagine that all other countries are under that same kind of U.S.-based comics code, right? But, like, what what are they having? What are the tropes they're having to behave towards, you know? And I feel like in, in the way that this is about, I, th- I think, clearly lampooning U.S. culture and, you know, its, it's impact on being exported everywhere, I hadn't thought about this at all until we're having this discussion. But like, what 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 is the Czech comic book policy at this time? I don't believe comic books were very widespread there or encouraged much as 
say Western music wasn't and just had to be smuggled into the country surreptitiously, there might well have been a long tradition of graphic arts and certainly the, the film poster art during the 60s was incredible and extremely creative and the equal of the Polish poster art that emerged at that time. The country has an incredible tradition of animation dating back to the earliest days of cinema. So there, there are these those modes of expression were well established. I Comic books, I don't think they would have exactly had their own moral code with them. I, I think it would have all been very underground. But then this is also lampooning the West and the comic books in being representative of that, really, I think, too. Just as a few years earlier, Who Wants to Kill Jesse? You know, the particular characters that become baddies in that are such icons of American comic books. Like Superman is a baddie? <laughs> you know, it's hilarious. And a cowboy is a baddie? You know, it's, it's all a bit askew. What, what I think is happening and, and happened in, say, Lipsky's first feature, was it, no, it wasn't perhaps his first feature, but Lemonade Joe, his first big hit, certainly, anyway, lampooning the most American of genres, the Western, is that there's, there's kind of a critiquing the West whilst critiquing the East simultaneously and just having your cake and eating it, like just really taking swings every which way. So I think there's a great deal of affection for what's being parodied, but it's also important that it seems ridiculous and perhaps that's a necessity for to get it past censors and authorities within Czechoslovakia as well. It's a really good question, Rain, as far as the moral code of, and sorry folks, I'm doing finger quotes, the moral code <laughs> of comics in Europe at this time, because you know I mentioned, well, Cerise, you mentioned Barbarella, the poster. I mean, that was a French comic strip or comic book. And then in Italy, you had the Fumettis. We talked about that with Diabolique. So, you know, there's a healthy industry going on, but I don't know, to your point, Cerise, I don't know if there were comics in Czechoslovakia or what was going on, but God, the, the artwork is just amazing. And yeah, obviously is passing for moral in the movie might not have passed when it came to actual kids buying comic books themselves because yeah maybe maybe they did have this level of violence but really the movie is so i can't say bloodless because you did mention the blood fountain earlier <laughs> which is great most of the violence takes place off screen it's so much of opening the doors for the corpses to fall in type of thing to the point where George is almost an expert by the end of the film of catching the corpse and laying them down on the ground. And then there's that great moment too, where I think it's Sabrina sees all the quote unquote blood coming from under the door, but it was actually the landlady had spilled something. So it was just pouring out under there. Oh, so many good moments in here. It's, it's a farce. It's a lot of what you've just described as classic farce goings on. It makes sense that Lipsky, I can't remember if he would go on to do Straw Hat or if he had already done it by this time. I think it's his next film. Pretty sure it came after. Yeah. Yeah. That is literal classic farce. That play had been around for a long time that that's based on, if it's based on the same play that I'm thinking of. Yeah. That film's wonderful too. It's really, really delightful. Um, and a bit more of a classical farce than this one, which you know is so pop arty. Whereas that one's a real period 
set, like convincingly period set piece. I want to say Wells even did an adaptation of Straw Hat. It might have been called like The Horse That Ate the Hat or something. It's, I mean, yeah, it's been kicking around since the 1800s, that story, if memory serves. And you get uh, Eva Genzarova back again in that, as well as my favorite, Vladimir Mesnik, as well. So uh, he's sadly missed from this film. I was really hoping he would show up as one of the gangsters, but I think he would have brought a little too much attention to himself just because he would have probably stolen the entire movie. That's just my opinion, though. He's one of my favorite actors as well. And whether as part of an ensemble, no one else could have been the lead and happy end. He's, he's just yeah, another extremely gifted comedian. I think he, he could have fit in the, the fabric of this, this film because I think in all of the ensemble comedies he appears in, he, he does fit without you know, stealing too much thunder. He does, you know, it doesn't overplay his hand, I, I feel. Yeah, like, I think you're right. Like Tomorrow I'll wake up and scald myself with tea. He doesn't steal the show even though he's one of the three Nazis in there. Yeah, or in, what would you say to some spinach? Uh, look, any number of others where he's just you know, one of the, the many embroiled in the lunacy. Even something more serious like All My Good Countrymen, where he manages to play a very serious role, even with that goofy face that he's got. And he even plays that one up by making the his teeth even more pronounced in that one. Yeah, he's a, a tremendous actor, um, but not in this film. <laughs> Sir, not appearing in this film. We could mention that the score is pretty great. Um, it's not by a composer that I'm super familiar with. And there's some uncredited pop tunes in there, or at least if they are in the credits, they're in one of the designed very credit cards at the beginning, and I couldn't absorb all the information in them. But there's just in amongst all this swinging jazz and spy movie theming, there's just um, at least one really cracking pop tune that I thought might be being sung by Marcia Kubishova, who's um, a, a fantastic pop singer and activist icon over there who gave up her career after 1968 when she wouldn't kowtow to the regime who wanted to use her as a puppet effectively for their messaging. Um, and instead, she just opted out. Uh, she had this golden voice and was the singer who really brought sort of English rock and roll phrasing to Czech language rock and roll singing and tried shazamming it as I was watching it last night and it told me nothing. And I'm dying to know. Did you know the song I mean? There's this, just a really, it's about maybe a half of the way in after one of the transitions to an, a new sequence. Um, it's just on the soundtrack. It's fantastic. I'm remembering it when you're, as you're talking about it. And I mean, it was so overwhelmed with everything else, all the visuals in particular, that the music has faded to the back of my mind. But yeah, I mean, the music was fantastic all the way through. And I'm going to probably just have to watch it again, just to listen to it, honestly. Yeah, there's at least two music breaks that happen in the movie. And I, I think you're talking about the first one, because the second one takes place at the club. And towards the end, when they're all meeting there, and you've got the all both of the gangs coming in, there's a really strange musical number there, but there's an equally strange earlier one. And I was able to find the earlier one was Eva Almarova, and then the the one at the club is Eva Yanzarova singing that. I was able to find the first one. There's a great uh, Czech music site called 
uh, Supraf online and found the first one was unable to find the second one. At least we'll get to play out with one of those. Oh, cool. And Superfont's the, the label. Then they also sell movies as well. So if folks are interested and they have, I want to say I can look at their site in English or it's mostly in, well, it's easy enough to get around if you know how to navigate a website. Some of the controls don't change whether you're looking at this in Czech or English. And I think that there's not an English version on here as opposed to like Czech film doc has an English version and a few other sites like B-O-N-T-O-N, Bonton or whatever. I think that has an English version. Supraf online does not. I do a lot of my film shopping online from Terry Posters, which yeah, the fantastic film poster shop in the center of Prague, but they also sell a lot of, well, not just posters, but films online as well. And you can find that quite navigable in English or Czech. So that, that's well worth a look. It's named Terry after Terry Gilliam. The actual shop uh, in Prague is called Terry Holponoski, which is actually literally Terry's socks. Because when it was opened up, I believe Mr. Gilliam donated some socks to the, uh, <laughs> to, to the shop, which are proudly displayed there to this day. But uh, the website, you, if you Googled Terry Posters Prague, you'll find, um, find the shop. And they've got a lot of great books as well. Well, let's go ahead and take a break and play a preview for next week's show. Jako hlava všeho vodnictva v Čechách zodpovídám za to, že u nás hodníci nevyhynou. Vy jste fakt zvláštní rodina. Co máš s doktorem Mráčkem? To, co zprovedla, přesahuje všechny mezi. Co vlastně chcete? Zlikvidovat Mráčka. Někdo mě sem zavřel. To jsem blázen. Mně se to vymýká z rukou. Toho Mráčka utopíš sama. Nestraší ti náhodou ve věži? Jak utopit doktora Mráčka a konec vodníků v Čechách? Ve čtvrtek na Prima Max. That's right, we'll continue Czech Tember next week with a look at how to drown Dr. Mráček the lawyer. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Cerise and Rain. So, Cerise, what has been keeping you busy lately? Oh, well, I was recently appointed the program director of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival, and this year's edition is in November, and uh, it is presently September. So, uh, that is keeping me very, very busy. Um, that's there's other little side hustles here and there. Oh, and because we've just done a Lipsky uh, episode, I recently wrote on Happy End in a monograph published by Electric Dreamhouse Publishing on Bride of Frankenstein. And I wrote about how Bride of Frankensteinian Happy Enders, which if you think of it in a certain way, coming at it from a certain direction, it is even some of the dialogue. But then that's used as a springboard to consider all sorts of Frankensteinian aspects to cinema itself being something that is stitched together in editing suites. And it just bounces all over the place. So that's a fun thing for people to chase down if interested. Uh, Edited by Emma Westwood. Fantastic book. I picked that up. I can't wait to read your piece on it. I haven't cracked the cover on it yet. Yeah, thank you. Well, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. And you've seen the film. So few people have. But I wrote it for people who haven't seen it as much as for anyone who has. And Rain, how about yourself? Well, I got a few irons in the fire. I just had a piece on walking published in the newest edition of the Hopkins Review, which I'm really, there's a whole folio on walking. So that's just out, which is exciting. And today, today we're recording this. I have a new song out on a compilation 
benefit compilation of mostly Baltimore artists, each of us doing songs that are exactly 60 seconds. Check out my website, rainrahne.com, and uh, you'll find links to all of these things. Well, thank you so much, ladies, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows I work on. They're all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Číšník bez tuzera je jak hladovej pes. Chrup se blízká dlaně pálí, mě jsem dále sex. Ať si zblízka nebo dále, tak se nabije. Eh? Jen jednou bylo včera a zítra budem spát. Kauči prasaj pera, pak říkaj mám rád.